fellow travelers, and welcome to Adventures in Security, episode 41 for October 15th, 2006. I'm your host, Tom Olzak. You can find the information covered in our episodes at adventuresinsecurity.com on the podcast page. If you're interested in commenting on what you hear or about topics you'd like us to talk about, please send email to podcasts at adventuresinsecurity.com. This episode consists of three topics, customer welfare versus vendor public image, establishing system assurance, and cyber espionage. Additional information about managing security can be found in my book, Just Enough Security, available at Amazon.com and, if you're interested in the electronic version, at dppstore.com. Within the last two weeks, two incidents occurred that appear to reflect certain organizations' fear of public disclosure to the point of putting their customers at risk. In the first incident, Microsoft's license verification process failed for a short time, causing end-user device connectivity issues. In the second, Cisco's remote operation services network, which is connected to customer networks, was infected by a worm. I'm going to take a look at each incident, and then I'm going to give you just a brief opinion on what I think they should have done. In early October, a problem on the WGA servers caused some Windows XP workstations to disconnect from the network. We had only two, since the outage was quickly corrected. The problem was caused by XP's process of periodically verifying with Microsoft that it's operating under a valid license. When this glitch occurred, any device attempting to validate itself over the Internet failed. As a result, the OS saw itself as having an invalid license and, among other things, enforced a policy that prevented the device from connecting to the AD domain. Users were unable to access resources. We received an unofficial response to our inquiries when we asked why customers weren't notified. The response was simply that Microsoft didn't think the impact on its customer base would be significant, so they decided not to tell anyone. Granted, Microsoft quickly corrected this issue, but we received no official communication. This resulted in us trying to troubleshoot problems with a couple of devices, but since we have thousands of them, this could have been a much bigger problem. In fact, two days ago, we met with our Microsoft account team, and they had no idea what we were talking about. But to be fair, I did find this buried in a Microsoft WGA forum, and I quote, Just a heads up on an issue related to volume VLK validation. On Monday and Tuesday of this this week, October 2nd through the 3rd, some VLK customers may have experienced problems with WGA validation. If a Windows XP system with a VLK recently began failing validation or reporting as non-genuine, then they may be experiencing this problem. The problem was a result of an issue on the Microsoft server side, and we are still investigating the cause. We regret any inconvenience this may have caused you, and I am personally working to get the information you need to resolve this issue. The Cisco situation is similar. This week, we received an email from Cisco Ross informing us that their network had been infected with a worm on June 24, 2006. Since they manage many of our WAN devices, they have a direct connection to our enterprise. The message informed us of the infection, that it was contained and eradicated, but that we should ensure our antivirus applications were up to date. It would be an understatement to say that we were concerned. After all, it only took them three months to notify us of the issue. 
When we asked our account team why we weren't informed of this issue immediately upon discovery, they told us that they were trying to determine the best way to communicate the problem. This was further complicated by a lack of of a customer notification process for dealing with malware challenges. I understand the public relations problems faced by an organization when situations like this happen, and these public relations problems are exacerbated by the fact that just about every journalist in the world, and I will have to admit, including yours truly, has a tendency to jump all over these large vendors when they make security mistakes. However, I believe that these organizations also have a responsibility to their customers, a responsibility that extends to keeping us informed so that we can take the proper steps to ensure continued service delivery to our customers, our employees, and our investors. In my opinion, the actions taken or not taken by these two vendors were not malicious, but they did come very close to negligence. I would hope that future incidents like this, and they will happen, are handled in a way that puts the customer first. So now let's move on to our next segment, Establishing System Assurance. The controls necessary to achieve an acceptable level of assurance for systems regulated by Sarbanes-Oxley, or SOX, is a common topic of debate at weekly meetings with our internal audit teams. The auditors contend that the failure of a set percentage of system-specific key controls constitutes a failed system audit. Security's position is that the various layers of security that protect systems with inherently weak controls mitigate business risk. For the purpose of this episode, I'm defining assurance level as the probability that the integrity of the data contained in a specific system is accurate. Before diving into the actual issue, I think it's important to examine how an organization of any size might achieve reasonable and appropriate assurance. To do this, we'll explore the various controls that make up a strong system assurance environment. Although there may be many ways to categorize controls, I'm using the three that work best in my environment, infrastructure, access, and administrative. Infrastructure controls are broken into two subcategories, network segmentation and monitoring. Network segmentation is the use of VLANs or other subnet configurations to separate the data center into discrete operational networks. VLANs are particularly useful because packets can be tagged to restrict packets to specific segments, act as an underlying infrastructure for network access controls, and position information resources into network segments with security controls commensurate with data classification. Monitoring solutions like intrusion detection and intrusion defense provide visibility into the network. Network traffic and packet anomalies can be quickly identified and either automatically blocked or dealt with in some other way. In support of a well-designed monitoring infrastructure, an organization should also have a documented incident response process. All employees who would take part in an incident recovery activity should be familiar with the process and regularly trained. A final infrastructure control is vulnerability scanning. Vulnerability scanning, both internal and external, provides information about weaknesses in the network or in a specific system. This information, along with information about security controls, can be fed into threat models to determine potential business risk. Access management controls are a set of technical or logical 
administrative, and physical controls designed to allow data access for authorized people and systems only. Physical controls are critical to the welfare of your information assets. If you can't prevent an attacker from physical contact with your network components, no amount of technology will provide reasonable and appropriate assurance. In addition to locks and chains, a review of individuals with access to sensitive areas, for example the data center, should be conducted regularly. Gaining access to these areas must require justification. In other words, individuals and their managers must, must make the case that access is required in order for them to perform their daily tasks. Technical access controls consist of solutions such as automated account provisioning, account termination, and enforced segregation of duties. Automated provisioning and terminations is a good way to enforce role-based access controls and to prevent the proliferation of stale accounts. This type of solution is typically linked to an organization's human resources system. New hires are provisioned based on job code and employees leaving the organization are removed from all access to information resources as defined by their assigned roles. Also, resource access is properly adjusted for employees changing jobs, thus preventing permission creep. If automation can't be cost-justified, manual processes should be in place to produce the same outcomes. Regular reviews of resource access by data owners is a good way to catch any account issues. The proper application of segregation of duties prevents a single individual from performing, from performing all the tasks related to a transaction. For example, segregation of duties rules configured in a payroll system would prevent an employee from entering hours worked, approving hours worked, printing a check, and picking up the check. Even if user login information was compromised, the attacker wouldn't be able to perform the tasks necessary to commit theft or fraud. The final set of controls, administrative controls, consists of policies, standards, guidelines, and processes. This is quite a list, but the final outcome is the practice of inspecting what you expect. For example, reports should be produced with the express purpose of ensuring data integrity. If control numbers are incorrect, immediate steps can be taken to identify where the problem occurred. Combining reporting with an effective system logging process provides the information necessary to decisively deal with technical or people issues. So what's the problem? Well, we have a solid security program. All the pieces described above and more exist. Threat models provide confirmation that although we're exposed to some risk, the level of potential business impact is acceptable. But this is often not enough to pass a system audit. The auditors assess each technical key control in isolation. In other words, no assessment of compensating controls is made. The control passes or fails on its own merit. I understand this. However, when the time comes to assess the overall assurance of a system, auditors and management must look beyond technical key controls. The overall infrastructure, technical and administrative controls applied to both the network and to specific systems must be taken into account when determining whether a system's assurance level is acceptable. As security professionals, we have a responsibility to the business to ensure a balance between security and operational efficiency. This includes allowing the use of the right software tools with appropriate configurations, even if a technical key controller or two is a little bent or even broken. 
as long as proper attention is paid to all controls, such that overall risk to data integrity is mitigated to an acceptable level, the business, its customers, its employees, and its investors are provided with reasonable and appropriate protection. Now we'll move to our third segment, cyber espionage. The basic focus of this segment is on the U.S. government and our national defense infrastructure vulnerability to cyber espionage. And this was prompted by reports in the press this week that the Department of Commerce was probably hacked by the Chinese. And this is based on an article that I wrote back in January of 2006 that covers some of the things that the government is doing or not doing to protect itself and its citizens. Hacking activities thought to be related to the theft of government secrets are a real threat to national security. In a January 25, 2006 article in Computer World, John Dunn reported that email containing an exploit for the Microsoft Windows WMF vulnerability was sent to recipients in the United Kingdom House of Parliament. According to Dunn, over 70 PCs were targeted on January 2, 2006, with messages intended to install keyloggers. This was confirmed by Message Labs, the government's message filtering company. Luckily, the messages were identified and stopped before they could reach their targets. The most disturbing piece of information coming out of this incident is the source of the attack, Guangdong Province in China. An isolated one-time attack might be passed off as just another malicious individual flexing his muscles, but this is at least the second incident in which Chinese attackers have targeted foreign governments. On November 4, 2004, attackers located in Guangdong Province launched an attack against the U.S. Army facility at Redstone Arsenal, but this attack is thought to have been successful. It's believed that U.S. military secrets, including aviation specifications and flight planning software, were stolen. It's also believed that the intended recipient for this information was the Chinese government. This successful breach of U.S. government security is part of an ongoing attempt by the Chinese to hack into government computers, and U.S. officials have named the hackers Titan Rain. So just how vulnerable is the U.S. infrastructure to cyber attacks by other nations or terrorist groups? During a 2004 FISMA required audit of security implemented by entities within the federal government, seven departments failed to achieve a passing grade, including the list of failed departments was the Department of Homeland Security. And since this article was written, the 2005 FISMA audit was released, and the results were no better. Congress and the Bush administration cuts by 7% the 2005 DHS budget for cybersecurity programs. In February of 2005, the Presidential IT Advisory Committee, or PTAC, completed a report entitled Cybersecurity, a Crisis of Prioritization. The following findings and recommendations were presented to the Bush administration. Finding the federal R&D budget provides inadequate funding for fundamental research in civilian cybersecurity. The recommendation? The NSF, DHS, and DARPA budgets should be increased significantly. Finding. The nation's cybersecurity research community is too small to adequately support the cybersecurity resource, research and education programs necessary to protect the United States. Recommendation? 
double the size of the civilian cybersecurity fundamental research community by the end of the decade. Finding, current cybersecurity technology transfer efforts are not adequate to successfully transition federal research investments into civilian sector best practices and products. Recommendation, the relationship between the federal government and the private sector must be strengthened. Lines of communication and cooperation must be developed and maintained. Finding, the overall fiber or federal cybersecurity R&D effort is currently unfocused and inefficient because of inadequate coordination and oversight. Recommendation, the Interagency Working Group on Critical Information Infrastructure Protection should become the focal point of R&D efforts, coordinating and prioritizing all activities. In December 2005, the members of the Cybersecurity Alliance expressed to the Bush administration its frustration with a lack of progress made in addressing online crime. The group, including organizations like Computer Associates, McAfee, Symantec, and RSA, believes that the lack of support and leadership shown by the federal government threatens the economy and national security. We shouldn't expect the federal government to solve all our problems, but we should expect leadership when national security and the overall public welfare are threatened. Congress and the President must change their priorities when addressing cybersecurity within the context of overall defense and social spending. If this does not happen, hackers will continue to outstrip our ability to protect our national infrastructure. Terrorists and foreign governments will find us a soft target. Well, that's it for this week. And until next time, be careful what you click.